Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Welcome to The Table. We discuss issues of God and culture. I'm Daryl Bach, Executive Director of Cultural Engagement for the Hendricks Center here at Dallas Theological Seminary. And our topic today is human trafficking. And my guest, my very special guest, is Mike Bartell Hello, of Mark. Free International, uh, who's come in from Las Vegas to be with us. We did a podcast earlier with him in which he was here over Skype, and this time we brought him right here in the yeah. flesh. So, so 3D. Really, really pleased to have you. Mike, why don't you uh, begin by telling us how in the world does a pastor, because I understand you have pastoral background, end up in a ministry on human trafficking? Uh, well, that's a good question. Um, I come from a rich history of ministers in my family. And uh, my grandmother was a church planter during the Great Depression into World War II, and, and uh, that's really what we thought we'd be doing. And, and I, I guess what really began to draw us into this is when we were engaging uh, with international students as campus pastors at Purdue University. Uh, it was in it was in the day to day mix of working with them, uh, hearing what was going on in their own culture and their own countries, that this issue came on our plate. It was January of '95, mm -hmm. and it was you know like all of us, it's kind of one of those moments when you can't believe what you just heard. We get that response with a lot of people trafficking, and it was so seared in our head. I mean, we never felt like God was calling us full time to it. Uh, whatever that might mean at the time, but but it became an exploration, a place of prayer for my family, a place of prayer for our churches as we move forward, and uh, just got to a point where I really felt God was saying, "Hey, this is an area that needs to be engaged," and uh, and we stepped into that space. So it says your co-founder. So is your wife the part two, or is that someone else? Yeah, no, that's my my gorgeous <laughs> wife. Uh, her and I. Um, together, actually, uh, as we put this burden on the plate of those uh, in our life who we, who we trusted, were spiritual mentors, uh, we were seeking God's direction, and it was really through our um, being open and honest and vulnerable with, with those we trusted with our life that, that they, got, they kind of put this on our plate for us. You know? So Free International, tell us about that as an organization. How long have you been around, and, mm -hmm. and what do you seek to do? Yeah, we, we actually started a full-time work in missions with human trafficking in Southern Asia with another organization. And uh, through the course of what that all entailed and interacting with the, the churches here in the United States and an understanding of the problem of trafficking here in the States, uh, we decided to come back and we started Free International back in 2007. Um, it focuses on the states. It focuses on trafficking of all sorts in the states, both uh, uh, sex trafficking of minors and adults, labor trafficking, those things that would overlap with that, as well as international trafficking. So the international piece to free right now uh, is actually from our work overseas. We have an international network of organizations, faith-based organizations and missionaries that work with us on a day-to-day -day basis, and we collaborate at an international level to be effective. So now, uh, most people, if they think of sex trafficking in particular, will think about uh, international sex trafficking. Well, it certainly is my exposure. My original exposure was in was in Thailand. I made a visit to a ministry. We ended up in a church talking about church ministries. Totally unprepared. I was totally unprepared for this, and the major 
uh, church ministry outreach that they had was in this area of rescuing people out of sex trafficking. Uh, and so they think, well, that happens over there, mm -hmm. but that's not the case, is it? Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's definitely different places in the world because of theological structures and cultural things that, that this issue is, is more evident, like India dealing with the caste system and different things like mm -hmm. that. Thailand, you know, 16%, upwards of 16% of their whole economy is based on commercial sex industry. Wow. But it, it affects every country of the world, every country, including the United States. And just like in the United States, there's different places in our country where it might be a little more evident than others, like Las Vegas, where mm -hmm. we're based, would look different than Des Moines, Iowa. Mm -hmm. But but it's not a matter of if it exists there or not. It's just a matter of knowing how to recognize it, considering you know the cultural pieces that fall into play, whether you're Midwest or coastal or whatever it might be. So what exactly does your ministry do? I mean, what is it? And you've got, I think you said, 26 people who work for you uh, in the ministry. What Are they coordinators? How does, how does it work? Yeah, we actually, when we started, um, it was just my wife and I, and uh, we were building uh, a reputation for our ability uh, to do the work and be competent, but also how collaborative we are. And our focus was on the local church. So we, um, we believe that God called a people out of darkness into light, His church, capital C, to reach this world, small and great alike. Uh, in, a, in a pragmatic context, that means the local church. What does that look like in each community? We begin to resource and empower that and begin to see effectiveness. And the more people uh, who had a unique call on their own life to work with this issue, they saw how, how effective we were and how collaborative we were and inclusive we were in our work uh, within the faith community. And so they decided to jump on. So really in the last two and a half to three years, uh, our team has grown to the size it is. And they're all missionaries, so they're all self-funded. Hmm. Even though Free International is its own not-for-profit, uh, each person on the team is self-funded. And that allows us a great mobility, great flexibility, great creativity, and, and our partners love us um, because we're not angling for the same money that they do to exist. And so that's the context to which Free is. We're a missions organization, but we work to find, rescue, embrace, and empower victims of human trafficking and forced prostitution. Okay, let's let's work through through um, look, let's work through that that acronym. Uh, find that's the most obvious thing I mm -hmm. think to someone who who uh, thinks about this kind of ministry. Uh, I guess the question is, where do you find? Well, let me start with some basic questions. What's the average age of of someone who ends up being entrapped in in sex trafficking? Well, the stats that our government uses um, that that's largely believed is is anywhere between 11 and 14 years old. So 13, 14 years old is the average age of a girl when she's first commercially exploited for sex. So mm -hmm. for it to be trafficking, there has to be some sort of commercial exchange, some sort of monetary mm -hmm. value you know, in the acquiring of that sexual act. And so between 13 and 14 years old. That's amazing. And, uh, and so you're dealing often, what, with runaways? Is that the most common? or Well, other... it's all the above, but uh -huh. obviously the, uh, some of the most vulnerable are the kids who are living on the street, the mm -hmm. runaways. Um, 2,200 to 2,300 kids are reported missing every day in this country. Hmm. There's more than that that go missing. Those are the ones that are just reported. But uh, within 48 hours, one-third have been approached by a pimp trafficker, two-thirds within 72 hours. Uh, on top of just the exploiters, you look at, especially the boys, they end up you know, trading, uh, trading sex mm -hmm. for a place to stay or you know, a meal or whatever it might and be. And that's actually what I was going to ask next is, yeah. is how do they get entrapped? 
Yeah, well, that's one way it works. That's mm-hmm. a way to survive their mm-hmm. environments because any any fourteen year old on the streets vulnerable. You mm-hmm. know, they can't get a, jo- a car, can't get a job. Mm-hmm. You know, they're 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 vulnerable mm-hmm. and they're easy to spot when they're out on the street. And so, those who would be predators uh, seek them out in that way. But it but it, those aren't the only ones that are are vulnerable. I mean, the number one risk factor for somebody who ends up sex trafficked is a self esteem issue. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and this isn't meant to cause fear. It's just a for instance. If a pimp is looking to recruit uh, in a mall, he'll look for a group of three girls and focus on that third wheel of the group. Mm. And man, your eyes are beautiful. And this, and if, and if she doesn't have a stable family environment or an absentee father, or, you know, any number of things there, there's there's a foothold for that exploiter to work that into something that benefits him financially. Uh, okay, so uh, so one place you find them is on the streets. Where 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 else are the, are the places where you might locate? If we're if we're dealing with labor trafficking, other ways, you know, with with the refugees that are coming in and the immigrant camps, you know, there's a vulnerability out there among the ladies. Uh, oftentimes, those who are from other countries brought in are are both labor and sex trafficked, and mm-hmm. so to appease, you know, a certain population of men in those immigrant communities, uh, um, you know, young girls might be used in that environment. Um, you know, you can look on the labor sec, uh, the labor side too, and look at the hospitality industry, and you know, knockoff goods that are being sold, and door-to-door magazine. You know, you'll see kids and fo- uh, uh, people from other countries that are selling magazine subscriptions door-to-door. We've worked cases uh, where where um, where that was a human trafficking case, and so th- those aren't always the case, but those are some vulnerable environments. Any commercial sex uh, club. Strip clubs, other places around there, you'll find vulnerable populations. On the labor side, does the fact that someone might be undocumented make them vulnerable? Is that part oh, of what? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Any just like any 14-year-old on the street is vulnerable. Anyone who is here um, doesn't have legal status in this country, uh, they're vulnerable. Even if even if we had the best laws in the world to uh, um, to adjust for that. Uh, oftentimes, those who are being brought in from other countries don't know how America works. They only mm-hmm. know how things worked in their own country. Mm-hmm. So the process of exploitation in that country, those assumptions are used against them to keep them enslaved here. And so not only that, but oftentimes those who are brought into this country who are trafficked came here legally. But but the people who brought them in then take their papers, so they're without their passport, they're without whatever their legal status is, and then that's used against them as well. Wow. So that's fine. Uh, next is rescue. What, what is what's involved in that? Yeah, rescue. Actually, we're moving away from the term rescue because it becomes a loaded term. We okay. are not a vigilante organization. Okay. And we've always explained rescue as holistic. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in the explanation, rescue works perfect. Mm-hmm. But we're moving to the other war word, which is restore, which restore. is really what okay. we mean by rescue anyway, a okay. holistic healing, mm-hmm. um, spiritually, emotionally, physically, you know, the education piece, all those things that that many of us uh, typically have gone through a, a, in our life um, that allow us to be the person we are that's been removed from these children's life in this life of exploitation. We try to move down that process of healing by uh, ministering in each areas of their life. And that's actually a pretty serious move because it's going to take time to bring that restoration because of what it is the person's been through, issues of trust, et cetera. Yeah, it, it really takes a lifetime. I know. 
Um, in the past, you know, we, we work with one of my favorite organizations in the world is Teen Challenge. And mm. I remember early on in their existence, as I read their history, there wasn't space for them to really exist within the faith community because it was seen as a social, social work mm-hmm. and the church doesn't do social work. But what happened in the process of that is, is these people were coming and they were coming to church. God was, was ministering to their need at the altar and they would say, I was addicted, but now I'm not anymore, mm-hmm. which is great. Those stories are awesome. Mm-hmm. But, but in the sense of restoration of somebody uh, that's been sex trafficked or however that looks, um, I've never seen a case where there's this instantaneous healing, and oftentimes I think it is because there was never a normal place in their life to begin with. Mm-hmm. They don't have a place to go back to to even know what a healthy relationship is, what healthy community is, what love is. Because oftentimes the very people who God called out to protect them, the Father, was either the one who exploited them or was absent. And so it takes a long process of, of healing to begin to, you know, show and model and, and pour into their lives healthy relationships to begin with. Hmm. So the first, so the next E is embrace. Is that right? Embrace. Okay. Yeah. And what's involved in that? Embrace is really tied to just um, meeting those immediate felt needs. You know, we we, you know, I've done some disaster relief work with some friends of mine. You know, a hurricane comes through town, everything's destroyed. Families, uh, what they need first and foremost is a you know is a bottle of water, mm-hmm. is, is some extra clothes and a cot to sleep in while while all this disaster gets sorted out and repaired and just like restore, that's a long-term process. Mm-hmm. So with us, when we look at embrace, it really just uh, a matter of meeting somebody's immediate needs. For instance, there was a few years ago um, with a friend of mine, um, we we worked a, we worked a situation to get a girl out. She was 26 years old. Um, she had been out on the street uh, prostituted by pimps since she was 13, so half her life. Mm. She she wanted out. She called my friend. He called me because I was close by. I went to get her, and when I picked her up, she had a trash bag about that big, and all it had in it was some lingerie or pimp bought her, and then the soap and the shampoo from the hotel she worked because he would never provide any of those personal items for mm. her. And so that's all she had in her life, 26 years old. She had this trash bag full of stuff. So as part of that process, uh, you know, I wouldn't say a trust-building process, not healing process, but trust-building process, we went and, you know, like some churches gave us some gift cards. We, 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 we went shopping with her as far as some ladies did to help her, mentor her, love her, choose clothes that, that didn't accent what was for sale anymore, mm-hmm. but, you know, that, that showed her dignity and who mm-hmm. she was and just provided those immediate needs for her. And it's through that process that she entered into a, you know, a relationship with Christ and a long-term approach to healing. Now, I think he, uh, I've heard you mention that the number of beds that are available to take care of people caught in sex trafficking is a pretty low number, uh, mm-hmm. that there, there isn't much available so that when you go to, to meet these needs, there really is not much of an infrastructure of support around it. Yeah, that's right. One of the big gaps in service is oftentimes um, there needs to be a demarcated space for some of these girls to heal, even if they come out of loving families. So, you know, we, we look at that same kind of thing oftentimes with, say, uh, um, a man or a woman who's come home from war and lost friends and, mm-hmm. you know, that no matter how much that family loves them, there's, there's space that needs to be addressed that needs a high level of competency and mm-hmm. some time away. And so shelters in this country, when we first started, there was uh, for minors, for under 18-year-old, there was less than 50 beds in this country set aside for a restorative care hmm. of girls who'd been trafficked. 
Um, that number in the last seven years has only increased slightly to around 200 beds in the whole country. That's the whole so, country. I mean, think about that. That's yeah. four beds per state, if you That's want right. to think of it that way. And, uh, for, for thousands upon thousands of people who need it. Now, I'll say this, too, as a rare awareness has come into play with what this looks like and mm-hmm. groups that have engaged it, the number of people who need those beds has increased. Mm-hmm. The reason there were so few beds is it wasn't being identified, it wasn't being engaged, mm-hmm. and now the beds so far are behind on really what what the awareness is to engage we we were given a property that we're at the end of developing it's going to be 20 beds administered to girls between 10 and 16 years old mm. who were either recovered and being they were being prostituted or uh they were they were put through uh kitty porn mm. and um and but it's a it's a heavy lifting process so so over the course of those seven years shelters have come and gone because it's such a uh a resource heavy thing to do uh, and other groups who have started homes didn't have necessarily the best network in place to address the trafficking side of this. And so we've seen houses open and then close. And uh, But that's a huge need right now. In our and country. another thing that often happens is, is that when someone is rescued, they need, they need to – they need to shift locations. They need to get out of That's the town right. that they're in. That's right. And and actually, there, there's a piece to that. It's just a gap, uh, a gap in need. There's a lot of gaps, but you know, like foster care. We got some churches and faith communities that have jumped all in with foster care, and mm-hmm. and they're ready to take people in. But but as it pertains to trafficking. It, you can't take a girl or a boy right off the street and put them right into foster care and have mm-hmm. it be effective. It works never. Mm-hmm. Not because the family's not competent, mm-hmm. but because there needs to be this kind of demarcated space where that where that girl, that boy, begins to wrap themselves uh, emotionally and through counseling through what their trauma was mm-hmm. so that when they do enter that home, that home becomes an empowering environment for them, not one they have to flee right away. And so so I think once some of these shelters start to take place and we get ours in place, it really puts into play a whole list of other services that our faith community can really help with, but it has to be in its place or it's not very effective. So this, this home that you have is designed to, what, house um, – house these girls for a time and and be a transition place, basically? Is that the way you're thinking of it? Or yeah, it? yeah. Although I would say it's, it, it, it's residential care, so okay. it is it is um, intensive. They'll be getting their schooling there. They'll be getting their counseling there. Um, it, it'll be an intensive, holistic place of healing. But again, if there's, if there's trained foster and adoption care families in this field on the backside willing to receive them, it, it, it frees up more space for our beds because we can release them into a, That's a family I mean. environment right. that frees up more beds. So we, we don't have any more beds, but we have more opportunity to move them through the process faster. With so that. about how long, roughly speaking, might someone stay in one of these kinds of facilities? Well, um, we're looking at a two years worth of programming, but in the end, it's somewhat open-ended. It doesn't mm-hmm. have to go two years, or it might go more than two years. When we were in Southern Asia, uh, which is a different context, obviously, but some of the girls had been there three and four and five years, and it's just a ma- you know every person's different. But it's know? a pretty long-term operation. I mean, to really cover this, you would need lots of these kinds of places in many ways and di- right? different types. So mm-hmm. there's needs for immediate safe houses. There's needs for you know uh, those who are over 18. There's there's various types of shelters that are needed, and all of them are lacking. Mm-hmm. But but one of the areas where it's most lacking is in that. Um, 
uh, residential care for minors uh, program. Now the last letter is um, is empower. Mm-hmm. So you know, you, I'm, I'm just today I'm learning this. So. Um, yeah. um, so what is what's involved in empowerment? Yeah, obviously the ultimate goal uh, with our organization or all of us who are people of faith is that that those um, that are exploited in the end carry the same testimony we do, which is that Christ makes everything new. Um, but there's all sorts of pieces in this empowering process that need to be addressed, and and uh, so we're looking at those next steps, like you know how do we help them get plugged in if, if they're so inclined um, into scholarships for college to you know take those next steps in their education to be nurses and lawyers and doctors and whatever they want to be. Let let them dream again as far as what they think they can be, where their identity was so wrapped up in what was being done to them. How do we open their eyes to what the possibilities are, and how do we create uh, an avenue to that being plausible for them? Uh, jobs that bring dignity instead of shame. How do we work with um, small business owners and entrepreneurs to train these ladies and how to take care? Because some of them have criminal records, mm-hmm. you know, that's of no fault of their own. Mm-hmm. And so when they go put in for employment somewhere, and there's 50 people in this economy that we have that are mm-hmm. applying for the same job, where do you think her resume is going to fall in that yeah, list exactly. of, of jobs? So we have to create options outside of that structure for entrepreneurial growth. For you know, and we've had some major corporate jump in too going knowing they have criminal backgrounds we're going to create space for a certain amount of jobs that have high mobility for those who are what it uh, you know for those we partner with and we partner with a group called Sabre that does that Mm -hmm. they're a fortune 100 company works hospitality uh, travelocity other things so we're looking at in the empower piece to creating options to seeing these girls these boys move forward and um, in a life of uh, uh, that that has hope to it, a hopeful future for themselves. So, uh, so, so someone comes to the end of this sequence, and I take it you've got uh, examples of people who've been rescued out of this, and have have they worked have they worked their way through free? I mean, are, are they have they uh, have they gotten to the point where they're empowered? Yeah, there's different areas of that, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, because we're intersecting with all these girls and boys and families at different levels. You know, where we're doing direct outreach, obviously we're going to put in place with ourselves and what we have capacity to build in or other organizations we partner with each aspect of this process. We've received girls who've been recovered by other groups that need certain help or need mm-hmm. to be relocated that we've brought in, we've tried to get set up even in Las Vegas for you know, for work, for employment, for other things, um, spiritual uh, discipleship, that type of scenario. So we've, we've engaged in all these areas at different levels of the process of their healing. And again, um, um, we have great success stories of, of girls we've worked with who were hurting and are now doing all right. Some of the girls and boys and families we've worked with, or girls and boys, you know, have, have different things going on that make it uh, an act of love. And we've had to recover multiple times because they're bipolar and they went off their medication and found themselves back. And so it's just an ongoing um, pursuit with some of them where, well, oftentimes we get, how many people have you rescued? And, and it, it just depends on how you want to define it, right? right? Yeah. It's a matter of, do we count her five times because we found her five times? Or, you know, at what point during this process of healing, are they, do we check them off the list? And I don't think that ever really happens. It's, it's like a community of faith where we're constantly engaged in each other's lives as we move forward to being more like him. Obviously, there are structural relationships that are a part of this. And I think I want to start here. You know, 
someone looks at an organization like yours and they go, I guess that's a church ministry, you know. Uh, um, I mean, I can see how you're helping people and restoring dignity and reaching out to people who are vulnerable. You know, there are passages like Proverbs 14.31 that says that uh, the oppression of the poor is an insult to God, but to actually show them favor uh, is to do Him honor. Great. So there are texts that support the kind of work that you're doing. But other people will go, well, that sounds kind of social gospel-y. So how do you see yourself? I know you talk a lot about seeing yourself as a mission. So what does that involve? Yeah, we, we are a missions organization. We really, you know, again, we I think where God is honored free and where he's given us favor with all these different agencies that, that will impact during the course of this segment is, is we've honored the local church as God's chosen agency to reach the world, mm -hmm. small and great alike, said. You know, whether that's somebody in the boardroom, down the street, you know, a teacher in the school with our kids, or a girl in a legal brothel of Nevada. Uh, it's it's God's people, His church, capital C, and pragmatically local church. Um, as far as effectiveness, uh, that's been tasked at doing that. And so, as a missions organization, we we've structured free as not a parachurch. You know, here we are. Mm -hmm. We'll do the work, and you guys can root us on from the sideline. And give your money. Exactly, yeah. give us money. But that we we look at the local churches. It has everything it needs. You know, mm -hmm. obviously God's bigger than all this to begin with, mm -hmm. but even just just strategically to reach their community. Mm -hmm. if, even a church of 50 people or 100 people, if we're working with them, they, they hit every segment of that society. They're truck drivers and educators and policemen and uh, politicians, and all of them are sitting in these churches as a part of um, a move for the Great Commission to reach this world, the tasking that we have. And so Free International honors that by saying, okay, here's a kind of a specialized group that isn't always easy to see and all, always easy to interact with, and there's some complications on the backside because of all these things that's been done to them. But how do we empower the local church? But more than how do we empower the local church, we philosophically believe the local church is that agency to do it. So um, so as a missions organization, uh, at the heart of everything we do is obviously the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, our motivation to love happens no matter what a response is on the other side. Mm -hmm. However, we also realize that we could we could set the table for all the stuff we talked about in the first segment, but in the end, what does it profit that a person gain the whole world then and still lose their soul? Mm -hmm. Now, we're not making decisions for people, but we are very honest, not only with the girls we approach, you know, as, as we build relationship mm -hmm. to them, as we interact with them, but also the, the agencies we partner with, you know, being able to bring the gospel to attorneys general and law enforcement agencies and something. But at the same time, the church has all those people in there. Mm -hmm. So how do, we, how do we work with a pastor to create a missional approach to these people's jobs that allow them to be the connection point to the vulnerable through their own church? So part of your point is, is that you don't need to reinvent the wheel and create your own organization to make this happen. You just need to utilize the resources that you have available within your church, and if you just have people who are sensitive to what they're capable of because of what they do, the job that they have or whatever, you you, you actually mobilize them. It, the empowerment, if I can say it that way, happens in two directions. It isn't just 
just empowering the person who's rescued, but you're also empowering a person for this kind of a ministry who says, look, you're in a natural place to be protected. You're a teacher who sees a vulnerable child in your school and you befriend them and give them self-esteem. That's a, that's a part of the process. Am that's exactly getting? part of the process. And that's that's really this, I believe, part of – that's why Christ left his church here. Mm-hmm. You know, if we said a prayer to God and he threw – you know, why didn't he just throw us up into heaven, you know, and say, well done, you, have, you finally built a relationship with me. Here we go. It's because he wishes none should perish. Mm-hmm. but. But to get to some of these people takes a little bit of um, added help, and it definitely requires collaboration. And uh, like I said, all these sectors are within the church already. So how do we identify it, um, partner with it, resource it, and, and, and empower it to be able to do uh, that through a local church leadership context. Now, one of the fascinating parts of this, as we've talked about this, is your, the relationship that you've built with two segments of what I would consider to be uh, civil government. One would be the law enforcement range and actually we earlier did a podcast with you and Darlene Line who who interestingly enough was just a student in one of my classes who I got to know and I heard that she was interested in this and she's the one who made me aware of how much of a problem this is in the United States and we talked